Guys, I think I am the Scotty Too Hottie of the <laughs> podcast. So you divide up amongst yourselves who's the Rikishi and who's the Grandmaster Sexay. Jake is Rikishi. You know, I feel like me and you would do like a solid thing, but Jake's like who comes in and puts it over the top. Yeah, Jake's the one the fans like. I also think he would hit Stone Cold with a car. <laughs> Turn it up! I, I did, did, did it for the rock. <laughs> um, also, too, I'm the, I'm the laziest of the three, so that definitely <laughs> would be Rikishi, because Nick does all of the hard work, and Tyler has done a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, I just come in with my big fat ass and be like, all right, let, let's make some podcasting magic. <laughs> if you did like lift your your stuff up through your ass cheeks, I'm sure we would just get like through the roof Patreon subscriptions, man. <laughs> I mean, I'll show my butthole. I mean, if, 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 if I'll, I'll show, like, listen, I, I'm, I'm going to put this off, offer out into the universe. I will show my butthole if uh, all we could do is 10 bell pod and drunk professional wrestling episodes. Like if, it, if we just made podcast content and then toured the country and did live shows, and that was our job, I'd show my butthole on the internet tonight. Like, <laughs> right. that is how dedicated I am to this show. I will, I will one-up you, Nick. Feel free to clip this, and you put it on all the socials. If we make it to 5,000 Patreon members in the lifetime of this podcast, <laughs> I will let Jake stink face me. Shit. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that's very that's that's attainable right there. So tell your friends. It's been made. It's been noted. It's you know keep. We need the person who keeps track of all of Skip and Shannon's cases of Diet Mountain Dew to keep track of this bet right here, and uh, we will go forth. I will gladly stink face you. Okay. Perfect. Um, I, I've had many of actually uh, wardrobe malfunctions with uh, wrestling trunks, so I've definitely shown my butt cheeks before in the ring. So, yeah. That's great. No uh, I'm kind of fat, so my ass crack is out all the time. So we're about mm. even. Well, this is Tim Bell Pod. I'm Nick. My butt's covered. I'm here with Tyler Wood. Howdy. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it gets good for one week, and then it progressively gets worse, and then it just gets, it, it's going to be like, uh, I'm here with, you know. And then on to Jake. Give me Give me my flower intro. And, uh, all right, speaking of not that good, here we go. I'm here with uh, Jakey the Campin' Scout Boat. I, I'm running out of these. I, I just, they're not all going to be good anymore. I can't. Uh, they're all going to be, you know what? I demand you to keep doing them and then they be equally as bad as that. I want, <laughs> I need <laughs> Jake Omasis Manning. Uh, like. <laughs> so we continue to go down the list, but yeah. Okay, so today we have a pretty f crazy one. This is this kind of been the theme of the season, like uh, very complicated stories. It's a season of complicated stories. So we're talking about the son of a king, super underrated wrestler. I'll uh, I'll get into that a little bit later. And one of the just biggest parts of the Attitude Era, 
Brian Christopher. This man had 1,168 documented matches over the course of his 27-year career. That is a lot. Uh, (laughs) Dozens of promotions. He's the son of Jerry the King Lawler. And uh, as someone that did not watch during the Attitude Era, it was kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around uh, Grandmaster Sexay, but I'm excited for you gentlemen <laughs> to really let me in on the secrets. But there's, there's a multitude of different secrets of Grandmaster Sexay, <laughs> as, as it should always be said. <laughs> but to be really quite honest, Brian Christopher's Memphis work, if you want to know about, like as, as much as I love Chris Candido and the like his style of wrestling. I really need to go back and watch some Brian Christopher from USWA. Yes. He's just unbelievably good and he was unbelievably over. I mean, I get most people are gonna remember the too cool stuff in WWE and rightfully so. It was on national television, but that Memphis stuff is so good. And as a matter of fact, one of my students, Lucky Ali, says his favorite wrestler is Brian Christopher, and he is actively studying Brian Christopher and his entire Memphis run, like every little nuance, every little cell, every little facial expression. He's even got gear that's inspired by Brian Christopher from that era. Like, it is very lost and forgotten about, and I think that's what Tim Bell Pot is all about, is unearthing the things that, you know, regular wrestling fans skip over or gloss over or don't find out about because they're just scrolling through Twitter and whenever Twitter tells them something like, hey, do you remember when so-and-so did this? And someone like me goes, yeah, I fucking lived it. I was aware <laughs> of it. I saw I saw it happen live and here a 16-year-old's like, this was crazy. I can't believe this happened. Yeah, it was during my lifetime. Much like I do with Tyler every time. <laughs> While we're kind of, I guess, on the topic, like, yeah, uh, doing research for this episode, I got straight edumacated on... Brian Christopher in Memphis. He was fucking incredible. Uh, like once everything, you know, there's a couple things you can find easily on uh, YouTube that like he had not quite put it all together yet. But once he does, he can talk his ass off. He can work his ass off. One of the most underrated wrestlers all time, for sure. In Memphis, he was the fucking man. Yeah, and I've heard many people say, Michael Bacchicchio from WhoStartedHighSpots.com, he said one of his favorite wrestlers was Brian Christopher in USWA. He goes, that guy was amazing. He was such a star, and you could just see it, that he was going to make it big. And yeah, I've heard multiple people talk about, like, yeah, my favorite wrestler was Brian Christopher in Memphis. Like, I've heard multiple people say that of different ages and generations and backgrounds. Like, he was our guy. All right, so let's get into his story. Brian Christopher Lawler, son of Jerry the King Lawler, was born January 10th, 1972, and of course, Memphis, Tennessee. Like a a lot of pro athletes, a lot of entertainers, but especially pro wrestlers with no offseason, Jerry wasn't there a lot. Caused some family drama. He divorced Brian's mom in 78. They would see Jerry so rarely that Brian and his brother had to start going to matches at the Mid-South Coliseum just to see their dad once a week. (laughs) Papa was a rolling stone, as they say. Yeah, and I've always heard this theory from Memphis guys that Jerry hated his kids because it made him feel old. Especially when, like, Brian got old enough that he was wrestling and, like, he was an adult. Jerry, you know, saw this full-grown man 
that is like, I'm your son. Like, that's why, you know, they always did the gimmick. Like, he's not my son or he's got a, a resemblance. Like, tongue in cheek, make jokes about how this isn't his son when everybody knew it was his son. But it was almost kind of a thing that, like, it was a reminder that Jerry is old. And if you've seen the Jerry Lawler A&E biography, he's just a big kid who likes Superman and Batman mm-hmm. and drives a Batmobile and likes Coca-Cola and he just wants to be a kid forever and date. 27 year old women forever you know like just look at boobies because boobies are fun you know like oh look at that butt woohoo you know like just wants to be a, a kid the entire life but when you have a kid you have to meet an adult and i it's not shocking that jerry ran away from that at all costs and that cost being a relationship with his son it is sad to me how much of brian's entire career revolves almost exclusively around his father like, aside from the Grandmaster Sexay stuff, that's probably, I think, the most, like that and the, the WWF uh, light heavyweight stuff is the most he really gets distanced from who his dad is. Like, you see it with Cody, and I think Cody's doing an okay job of, like, honoring his relationship with his dad and, like, his father's legacy without it becoming all-encompassing to his character. But, it's tattooed on his chest, Tyler. I know, but he... It, it's tattooed <laughs> on his chest! But he's in the main event. He is in the main event. It seems like... So, Cody's stuff can come into storyline, and, like, there can be stuff made of it. Brian... He's the American Nightmare! <laughs> Amer- which is the reverse of a dream! That's what I'm saying. Even with Cody doing all that, it still feels like Brian's career revolved more around his father and really more behind the scenes than on camera. Uh, Yeah. And it's tough because he was in Memphis where his dad is the king, the fucking (laughs) king. And I just remember like the Jamie Dundee shoot interview. One of my favorite lines from it was he was saying that Brian Christopher, you need to move. You need to move. You get out of Memphis. You can't, you can't live there. They're going to let you get away with murder. You're the, you're the king's son. You're the king's son. You can shoot a man in the middle of the street and be like, go on, Brian, go on, get it. Like, like, and that's, I mean, for better or worse, whether he intentionally tried to do it or it ended up that way, yeah, you're right. He just, it was so wrapped around his father who, as you said, like had very little relationship with him earlier in his life. Not to be like armchair therapist, but I think his mom even touched on this. Wrestling was definitely a way for him to reach out to his dad. He was a, a kid without a dad. Wrestling was that connection they had, and that's why he pursued it. Growing up, you know, aside from attending the matches, him and his friends would uh, pro wrestle off the couch. At one point, they started a backyard federation, putting together like a makeshift ring that's how I kind of connected with my father was sports. Like me and my dad had a very weird relationship growing up. We didn't connect on anything. I liked comic books. I liked computers. I liked all kinds of things. But when I started doing sports, that's when my dad started taking interest in the things that I did. So I imagine all these attempts to start his own wrestling promotion and being the booker for six months. Then he trades off with another guy <laughs> to be the booker of this backyard wrestling fed. who was kind of a, in a sense of like, do these things to get closer to his father. So I definitely empathize with this uh, 100%. Well, if he wasn't booking himself to go over, is he really Jerry's kid? <laughs> no, no, no. When the other guy had the book for six months, he was always doing jobs there, but he, he was okay with it. Cause he knew as soon as he got the book back, he would then, you know, be jobbing everybody out. Smart. So in high school, Brian played a little bit of football. So he does have that base of like athleticism. It was in high school where Brian would dip his toe into pro wrestling for the first time. 
he showed up to like some local indies that were apparently very bad. Uh, he brought his friend Tony Williams along with him. So I guess since he's Jerry's kid or he got to go backstage, but Brian and Tony are talking to some of the wrestlers backstage and, uh, you know, Brian's a very, uh, arrogant, loud dude. Uh, I'd assume even worse in high school. And he was just like, man, this shit sucks. <laughs> and, uh, basically what the wrestler said, here's my boots. If you think you can do it better, go do it. So Brian did him and Tony went out, had a match and it was, uh, kind of good after a lifetime of watching wrestling after seeing his dad do it, having his dad's, you know, gene that, that Lawler floating around in there somewhere. Naturally he like just wasn't half bad. It's kind of like that. Patrice O'Neill story where he showed up to a comedy show, heckled all the comics on stage, and they finally do, oh, you think you got jokes? Get up on stage and do it. And he turns out he was fantastic, and he was Patrice <laughs> O'Neill. But also, too, like, I think that was putting it mildly how arrogant Brian was. He goes, I'm the king's son. I guarantee I can fucking do this better. <laughs> <laughs> and did every, like, old school Memphis trick in the book. Did Jackie Fargo bits that have been done, like, a million times over that, like, you could do while wrestling a broom. If he was looking up to his father at all, like, his dad could wrestle a broom. I mean, hell, like, the easiest, most fun I've ever had in the ring before is wrestling Jerry Lawler. And I, I can imagine if Brian was pattering whatever he thought processing was after his dad, then he already had a great foundation to just walk in there on a whim one day for sure. Really losing out on the chance to call himself the Prince here too, which I guess that goes into like <laughs> the, you know, Jerry doesn't want to claim me. I don't want to claim my dad, but like yeah. th the fact that you said I'm the King's son and not the Prince, it just sounds, it follows. <laughs> Oh, I, I guarantee he said that to everybody. I'm the king's son. Gets pulled over. I'm the king's son. Like that's why Jamie Dundee is like said, you gotta move. You gotta move, Brian. You gotta get out. You gotta, you gotta get away. Dude, seeing some of these pictures of him in these USWA, like when he's real young, that mullet mustache combo. Goddamn, that is that. He's the Grandmaster Pussy Slayer right there, man. He is killing it. Grandmaster Pussy Slayer. <laughs> From that match, Brian was able to get a tape, and he ended up showing his dad, kind of like as a joke. I think he opened with, hey, you want to see something funny or something like, you know, he wasn't expecting Jerry to like it, and Jerry was actually pretty impressed. So he told Brian that if he found some tights that, like, covered his body, he wore a mask, he went and got his own boots, then shit, he can come down to the station and wrestle on the weekends. And that is how... Brian Christopher broke into the business as a junior in high school, no formal training, but at the same time, you know, he's getting to watch and learn from some of the great minds in wrestling. Actually gave Tom Pritchard a lot of praise for, you know, helping him along. Also, I'd assume he got some pointers from dad. Yeah, probably, but also to Dr. Tom Pritchard. That man, he could accidentally teach you how to be the most incredible wrestler in the world. You could like just be on a show with him a couple of times over and you're going to learn like more than what you would ever do at a wrestling school. Dr. Tom is just born to teach people how to be amazing wrestlers. And he has a school in Knoxville not too far away. So he's such a good teacher. He's so patient, right? which is like the number one attribute of a really good teacher is patience. And Dr. Tom has it in spades. And just I'm sure he saw somebody like... You know, Brian is like, all right, well, you want to go do a kid? Well, well, 
let's go ahead and do it and and probably explained it well enough and if if brian wanted to do a drop kick you know dr tom probably well you gotta do this you get a little higher get those kick those feet up and then just jump dr tom was just born to make great wrestlers brian began wrestling uh you know under the mask with his friend from the wrestling show tony williams as the twilight zone taking the names nebula and quasar after brian graduated high school jerry jarrett came to him and was like, hey, you want a spot? You got it. Brian tried some college, decided it wasn't for him. He wanted that wrestling lifestyle. He was in the USWA by late 1990. So at this point, he was still tagging with Tony, but under a new name, the New Kids, a play off uh, New Kids on the Block, which uh, Brian did not like. Tyler New Kids on the Block is like an 80s version of the 90s Backstreet Boys, and the 90s Backstreet Boys are like a 90s version of One Direction, if that makes sense to you. Keep it going. One more. What's the 2010s? Uh, Shit. Ah, you old fuck. Jolt. (laughs) (laughs) What's that? What's that? Uh... Is it is like a Korean like a BTS K pop BTS yeah BTS yeah is that BTS the new kids the new kids on the block are basically the eighties version of BTS okay. like there you go right, like gotcha. smooth like we butter. got there gotcha yeah we get <laughs> but yeah I could see Brian not liking that but gosh that is such a Memphis thing to fucking do what was hot three or four years ago <laughs> yeah that and let's make music do they have a song already. Fantastic. There you go. I can hear just Brian coming out to, whoa, uh, oh, oh, whoa, uh, oh, oh, whoa, uh, oh, oh, the right stuff. We kind of touched on this already, but I think it's kind of cool that Brian didn't use a Lawler name. And, you know, like Tyler said, Jerry was definitely helping him in the back, which is arguably more important because, you know, being the junior of someone is tricky. 91, Brian was doing runs as a single competitor, picking up quite the winning streak into February of 92, where he would take the USWA title off of Tom Pritchard. As part of his title run, they'd unify the USWA heavyweight and Southern heavyweight titles uh, when he beat Jimmy Valiant, and he'd fend off all challenges until he passed the belt back off to Tom in July. And we have referenced many times about how Memphis played hot potato with their titles. Brian would be no different. And I think he had 44 different title runs (laughs) across all the belts and all while getting himself over crazy as a face, as a hill, and would soon enter into one of his biggest feuds with uh, Mr. Jarrett's baby boy, Jeff. Yeah. And I I just feel like the the, the hot potato that happened with that USWA title, it's kind of like... A situation of like, well, you know, houses are down. What what really pops a territory? I don't know. Switching the belt around. Yeah, let's do that. Let's just do that all the time. Like <laughs> much of the situation, if you're putting together a multi-man match and they're like, oh, just do all the cool shit as fast as possible. And you're like putting it together. I'm like, I don't know. What's the most interesting part of the match? You're like, I don't know. Come back. Like, all right, everybody's just doing a, a chain of comebacks. <laughs> like, and everybody's doing a chain of, of, of falsies and finishers. And then we're just going to end this thing. I think that's kind of what the title switches were in USWA. I'm like, what really gets people excited? Title changes. Yeah, let's have one every week. (laughs) Now, too sexy Brian Christopher. He faced Jeff Jarrett well into 93, battling over the Southern Heavyweight title, which I know I just said it was unified, but I guess it was back, even though there was a unified heavyweight title floating around. Also, too, I think they were like, 
they were doing a lot of promos with Jerry, like saying like, Brian Christopher, I'm going to spank you just like your daddy should have. Like he do like a <laughs> lot of comments like that, that are very like funny to everybody who knows inside jokes in a sense. I, I think I've like heard him say like a lot of jokes like that about Brian Christopher over the years. So it was always kind of funny to look back at tapes like that, where he would say stuff like that. Also in 93, Brian and good old Scotty Flamingo would uh, feud with the Moondogs over the tag titles. All while uh, Brian would break off to keep wrestling against Jeff. In late 93, Jeff and Brian would actually be a tag team feuding with Coco Beware and Rex Hargrove. They'd also work in PG-13 from time to time. I was just now thinking about that as like you have Bill Dundee's son, Jamie Dundee, who's a nutcase. Brian Christopher, the king's son, who's also a nutcase. And somehow Jeff Jarrett's the normal one in the room. Right? <laughs> <laughs> just, who's got... The biggest carniest background ever, and he's the he's the straight lace like proper one of of the two for whatever reason. And then he got Wolfie D just chilling over there, drawing some amazing shit. Rolling into '94, Brian would get into the ring with some pretty fancy names: Buddy Landell, Tommy Rich, Terry Funk, and he did a whole big run with Eddie Gilbert over the heavyweight title. And this is like something that Jamie Dundee would talk about when. He got in the WWF. He was kind of like, fuck y'all. I worked with Steve Austin when he was Steve the Jabroni. I used to be <laughs> tag team partners with Rock. All these people were still coming through Memphis for USWA. And here's Brian Christopher, like, been wrestling for a handful of years. And he's in there with Terry Funk and anybody who's, like, getting fired and open and available that's going to come through Memphis for a short period of time and getting to wrestle all these fantastic people. And then, like, he gets up there and you want him to act right? <laughs> like, you want him to act responsible in the WWF? I was like, I was wrestling Terry Funk in the Mid-South Coliseum. Fuck all y'all. <laughs> like, I was doing that at 22. Think I'm supposed to get excited about Techno Teen 2000? Like, <laughs> fuck y'all. In October 94, Brian got to go over to Japan and he tagged with Dark Patriot, who was actually Doug Gilbert. That guy, that Doug Gilbert that that killed his career on live television, that guy, (laughs) but somehow is famous for it. More famous for it, I should say. Back home in Memphis in early 95, Brian took the heavyweight title off of Tommy Rich, and he would defend it against Sid Vicious, who was over in Memphis for a minute. Later in 95, he'd do a big run with the always interesting Billy Jack Haynes. And to 96, it's more of the same, kind of popcorning the titles around. It seemed like he did get to work with a lot of that WWF talent, whether they were fired and coming in, whether they were rehabbing and coming in. Or if Billy Jack's just coming in because he's got to do a hit job for the Clintons in <laughs> Arkansas, you know, like murdering somebody in the woods of Little Rock, you know, just catch them in between. <laughs> In 96, Brian would also tag with a young Flex Cavana, who we all know as XFL commissioner, fellow Zoa energy drink drinker, and the great one, Rocky Maivia. Flex Cavana. That is... (laughs) Oh, man. He should have taken that to WWF TV, and that would have cut out all the middleman shit with him not being over. With a name like Flex, that's gold, baby. That's money printing. I can hear it. And also, too, like, he's he's not, like, jacked like he is now, 
but like for Memphis, like, oh, that guy's got a lot of muscle. Mm-hmm. He's we like call thick. Him, yeah, is what he we're, is. We're gonna, we're gonna call him Flex. Just like <laughs> Austin Idol is just a big, like, burly dude. He goes, he's a universal heartthrob. See them muscles? See that non definition, but just a big old arm? That guy's a heartthrob. <laughs> Have you seen that picture? Oh, God. I, I think. I forgot what it was, but it was like women were going wild for the wrestlers back in the 80s. And you see a picture of these four dudes that are all just shaped like stepdads. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> they all have mustaches oh. and mullets. <laughs> oh, and when I first started in like wrestling and I was wrestling in Southwest Virginia and West Virginia. I was like wrestling with grown men. Like I, we talked about in the Tracy Smothers episode, like I was wrestling grown men. Those grown men had groupies because they had wrestled in that area forever. And they were like, I don't want to say some of their names because some of them were married and they were definitely fucking around with their wives. <laughs> <laughs> like here's this guy who just looks like he works at the, the dairy plant, but then wrestles on the weekend and he's tag team champion. <laughs> he's just like oh yeah you know she's a good rat over there or she's a good groupie over there like and they would come out and be like oh guys a heartthrob like what the fuck are you talking about i never got it it was very it was very weird but there were like areas in old smoky mountain regions where that was even still going on in the early 2000s nah man you don't understand she don't have no teeth and that's a good thing oh i've heard that <laughs> phrase before and they meant it like, i've heard that shit said and they meant it, not as a joke. That was like, you don't understand. That's so good. I'm like, never, never once was that interested in it. <laughs> 1997 is going to be a big year of change for Brian. Because first of all, USWA shut down. We're in full-blown Attitude Era, full-blown Monday Night Wars. And since USWA ran their big show on Monday, it was getting slaughtered. Luckily, Brian had quite the connect at WWF with uh, Jerry the King Lawler. And uh, actually, at this point, Brian had been under like sort of a developmental contract for a minute now. But they sort of kept him around Memphis because, you know, Jarrett was gone. Jerry was gone. And if Brian, who was very over in Memphis, if he left too, they would have shut down like four years ago. Brian would be in the Fed by June of 97, with his first TV taping coming June 16th, getting a win over Tommy Rogers at Shotgun Saturday night, before changing out the ring skirts and losing to the late, great Chris Candido on Raw. It's so weird that Tommy Rogers is getting a shot, like a guy who's teamed with Bobby Fulton as the Fantastics at Jim Crockett Promotions, and then here he is. WWF in the <laughs> mid 90s. Then also, too, he had like a really good run in ECW, too. Like, he made some really good appearances and matches there, too. Tommy Rogers, very, very forgotten about and neglected as far as the history of time and professional wrestling. But like, he just fit in this weird spot for whatever reason. But yeah, but I remember Brian Christopher coming in. I was like, who is this guy? Like, even, you know, for me, like seeing somebody new like that with a shit ton of personality like oh this guy's a star I-, I knew nothing of uswa or who he was all i know is this there's this new guy on tv and like he was very much like chris candido but like even more over the top and more annoying i was like yeah i'm about this guy for sure so the next raw brian beats scott taylor which is kind of cool at this point scott had been a job guy in the wwf for a while and he was one of those smaller guys that just bumped like a fucking psycho made everyone look like a killer 
And one of my favorite things is how uh, Scott Taylor, he just looks like a dude. He, he like You can put him in WCCW. You could have put him in Georgia. You could put him anywhere. And then to see what he becomes is just so drastic. Well, and the thing is, he has to keep that look now forever. Yeah. You know, yeah, he, yeah, was, forever. He, was, yeah. he was just a dude and he could have just blend in a normal work day. But now once he got that look of the blonde hair with the Fu Manchu, if he changes <laughs> that, he can't get bookings anymore. <laughs> like, it's kind of like with me and the mustache. I get very fearful of like the day that I have to shave it off. I'm like, oh, that's when I definitely retire. <laughs> same with, same with Scotty Duhati. The second he, he like lets his hair go back to like a normal color and like he changes shaves off the mustache like it's over for him <laughs> but like what a nice guy and you're right what bumps like a champ such a good dude i booked him for a brewery show last year gosh he was i was having such an awful day and he just made my life so much better i mean not only is he a, a, you know a great guy to wrestle but like just as a guy to have around you know brian obviously had the connection because of his father but you know, anybody that spent any time with Scotty, I'm, I'm sure WWF's like, yeah, we got to find, we got this light heavyweight thing. We got to get, get Scott in here because everybody likes wrestling him. Everybody likes having him in the locker room. He'll do whatever we want. We, we got to have him here. I mean, he's just one of those guys you want around, you want in your locker room, and you need to have him around because he's just makes everybody happier around you. And as things get off the wheels more for Brian, it's probably very similar to people when they look at Mike Tomlin and they're like, Man, Mike Tomlin, he he put up with Antonio Brown for, for X amount of years. How is that possible? In the same extent of, you know, Scotty Tuhati. Man, he put up with Ryan Christopher for that long? Wow, that guy is amazing. We can keep this, like, off record. I, I was just wondering this. When they linked back up in the indie days, is Scotty okay? Like, is he kind of fucked up? Oh, dear God, no. Okay. Oh, yeah, Scotty, do I, I don't you leave that in? Let, I will. I will shame you for even thinking that's <laughs> even a thing. I, I, I like Scotty. May like Scotty is the type of guy like you do a show. We go out. He'd have like one beer, and then he'd be like, and they would come back. You guys want another beer? And he'd be like, oh, I better not. I better not. Okay. okay. Like, like he would if he did drink, he would have one beer with dinner, and that would be it. He is. I mean, we can keep this in because it just it talks about how what a great dude he is. All he cares about is his family. And I remember being on shows with him, and he he really bonded with uh, Joey Sylvia a lot when we did the Hermie Sadler shows, because Joey Sylvia had a young daughter who was roughly like a few years younger than Scotty Tuhati's daughter. And the biggest I've ever seen Scotty st- smile was he got a a picture on like his flip phone or one of the early cell phones of his daughter getting a new backpack for school. That guy, like, he is all about his family. He loves his kids. If you've ever paid attention to his Instagram, like, there's always pictures of him and his son and his daughter. I think his daughter is one of the dancers at, like, one of the attractions at Disney World, which makes him so happy because as much as he loves pro wrestling, he loves theme parks. Like, he was trying to do something where he goes around all these theme parks and films them and travels across the country. But he's such a family man. Like, he, he took a booking in Alaska solely so him and his son could go to Alaska together. I mean, he is, I mean, he's the, he's the, of wrestling dads, I don't know if it gets a whole lot better than him. He's like top three, top five all time of, of like wrestling dads. Just an amazing dude. So yeah, there's, there's no salacious story that you're going to find about Scotty Zuhati. 
Brian Christopher, though, I'm sure we'll have one or two. But, <laughs> but Scotty, no, just one of the best people I've met in professional wrestling in my 20-year career. All right, so after his first couple of Raws, Brian would uh, pick up a bunch of singles wins because he was going to be a big part of the brand new light heavyweight division. Brian got his first pay-per-view time in at September's In Your House 17, Ground Zero, where he got a count-out win against Scott Putsky. After some house show dates, Brian was part of that light heavyweight title tournament, beating Flanagan to meet Taka Michinoku in the finals of December 7th, 97's In Your House Degeneration X. I caught this match either before or after while we were doing research on something totally different, but I just remember this was mind-blowing how good Brian Christopher and Taka were together. At this point, I wasn't really familiar with Brian in Memphis, and I was just, you know, took me by surprise. And you can catch a clip on uh, YouTube of the very ending of this match, and uh, Jerry is back to acknowledging Brian as his son again. It just goes back to what I've always said about Candido. Like, you get a guy who knows how to work that Southern heel style of just constant motion, constant bumping, constantly making the baby face look good. And if you're in there with somebody who can do an amazing amount of stuff, like Taka, who's got the influence of Lucha Libre and Mexican wrestling and Japanese wrestling, junior style, Brian knows where to put it, you know, and can be like, all right, well, you do this fantastic thing, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work the crowd, and then I'll work the crowd, and then you do something amazing, and then I'll keep the crowd, and I'll keep them here, and then I'm going to beat you up a little bit, I'm just going to punch, kick, I'll be a bad guy, and then you do a more amazing shit, you know? You get someone like Brian who can put Taka's amazing stuff in a nice little story and, and some psychology to it, and then just bumping like a champ every time he does something. It's just the style is going to work forever. For, for the end of time and like you get a young kid that knows how to do a lot of stuff which most of them do and you get a guy that knows how to be a good heel and knows to, to bump a whole bunch of times you're gonna, always gonna have a great match and that's exactly what brian does here on pay-per-view into 98 brian hit the house show loops with taka but as vince lost interest in the light heavyweight division uh it was starting to look like creative has nothing for you brother but that was until wrestlemania 14 when he was paired up with Scott Taylor for a 15-team battle royal. It was won by the returning Legion of Doom, managed by uh, Sunny, who spoke to me on a spiritual level in, the, in, in her LOD costume, that, that WrestleMania. She spoke to all of us, Nicholas. She, sp- <laughs> she, she took us to church that day. It was definitely Sunday, and we were all attending church that day. <laughs> WrestleMania 13, you say? 14. 14. All right. Give me just a second here. I want to be on the same page as everybody else. Um, oh, okay. All right. All right. How old were you, Tyler? Uh, what year was this? 98. I was four. No, my birthday's in May, so I was three. Uh. After Mania, the pairing of Scott and Brian stuck together with Too Sexy Brian teaming up with Too Hot Scott. Going by Too Much, uh, Brian and Scott hilled it up around the house show loops, stopping for the occasional shotgun Saturday to grab a TV win. But it seemed like, at least for like a minute, this was going to be their ceiling. At King of the Ring 98, the two beat Al Snow and Head with Jerry as special guest ref. And uh, Jake, my job as a 
as a wrestling journalist, as a wrestling journalist, is to get to the bottom of the hard-hitting issues surrounding this chaotic industry. So I have a question. Al Snow and Head versus Man Scout Intent. Who wins? I've wanted that match for so fucking long. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I really wish Al Snow didn't piss everybody off and we could make that happen. Like, <laughs> I feel like if like Al wanted to get weird, we'd get weird. And we could have had all kinds of fun with that. And I just never got to that. Unfortunately, all I have is a match with Al Snow where... I was in a super cold dressing room, and then the arena was in the hottest hells of Hades, and I didn't have anything to eat that day, and I basically vomited, and we had oh, to take it, take it home early. Unfortunately, that was my own, only interaction with Al Snow. I really wish I would have got a match with him, and he got the mascot gimmick and wanted to play ball with me intent. The offer's still there. I don't know who's going to book that, but the offer's still there. Would you take a Perry Saturn and Moppy match? <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. I think, uh, depend, like, I think I could, I don't, I might want to work more with Moppy than I would Perry these days. So. <laughs> oh, what about the uh, DDT, the blow DDT champion? Uh, it's not a blow-up doll. It's a wrestler, Nick. Quit being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Kiriko or Kyoko? That's the one. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I used to know, and I just, it, it, I keep forgetting. Oh, actually, I saw, I saw the doll at, at the taping in St. Louis had the title around that. And I just was like, were they in catering? (laughs) Yeah, they were, they were definitely in catering at one point in time. Uh, Definitely got two plates when they really should just took one. Uh, Uh, But they they were sitting in the admin office on the the ground, (laughs) like passed out with the, with the belt around them. And I was just like, you son of a bitch. (laughs) Who's responsible for that? DDT, what you DDT is responsible for that. Yeah, but who's like, who is the person responsible for for bringing it over to the U.S.? I think the person that's in that all black jumpsuit when they bring it out to the <laughs> ring, like that person's in charge of it. Whoever that is. So too much wasn't too good. I really identify with this iteration because I've been called too much on many of occasion. <laughs> I, I, I liked it. It was fun, but it did get us. It was a stop off to get us to our actual point. I need more Polynesian to. fat asses in here. <laughs> These guys are too small. I need a big <laughs> fat ass. Like I sound like Al, Al Pacino right there because she's got a huge ass. <laughs> like. Too much got spots throughout 98, 99, but they didn't have like a tremendous amount of success. But then June 99 they'd reached their final form, becoming Too Cool, Brian becoming Grandmaster Sex A, and Scott becoming uh, Too Hottie. Kind of a weird transition here. Before they become the tag team we all know and love, they did this like one night appearance where they brought out like a like a stereo system. And then Brian was having like a house show match. I think it was D'Lo Brown. Blew out his fucking knee like all the way. Like, his ACL, his meniscus, the WWF doctor said it was the worst knee he had ever seen. If a pro wrestler doctor is saying anything is the worst, like, you dead. Oh, don't worry, Doc Sampson. One day, I'm going to be in a dark match, and I'm going to blow out this, this knee I got, and I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna hear the famous words from Doc Sampson. And he's like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? How were you able to even get in the ring before? 
Uh, it's been a long time since the intro. I believe I said I was Scotty Too Hottie, right? Yes, yes. So that means, uh, Jake, you said you were Rikishi. Yes, because I'm the lazy one. <laughs> so, Nick, that means, I mean, if the fans are interested, they can, you know, drop a comment or tweet at us directly or whatever they want. But uh, I think since you are the Brian Christopher, <laughs> I'd be very interested in seeing you do the Brian Christopher entrance dance. <laughs> You know what? I've It's always been a dream of mine, and I've pitched this even when Micah was here. If we ever do a live show, I want to do the two cool dance with us three. <laughs> I want Jake to come in, put on the yellow shades, so I'm down as fuck. Hell yeah. All right. All right, cool. Once again, I just got to show my butthole, and <laughs> that financier will come along, and we will just make this podcast thing our lives, and we'll do live shows at theaters. We'll basically be the small town murder conglomerate of professional wrestling podcast. You know, if if Chainsaw Joe Gacy can do a uh, do the worm when he's hypnotized by Amasa Sinophidian, I think I can do it too. After Brian blew out his knee, he rehabbed like a fucking maniac and an injury that keeps most athletes out a year, if not longer. Brian was back in four months. Jesus Christ, that is half the fucking recovery time of an ACL. That is half. Like, I, that's why I've never had my ACL fixed. I'm like, I can't leave for eight months. Like, I'll be, like, we'll be able to walk for six. By the time I come back, nobody will remember who the fuck I am. I can't fucking leave. For him to come back in four, that's insane. Jake, you're afraid no one will know who you are? I have it on good authority that, that Sanjay Dutt knows exactly who you are. <laughs> oh, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> fuck it. And, and Sanjay wonders why I didn't give him a free hoodie. Uh, <laughs> Still resentment over that. So on the 11th episode ever of SmackDown, October 26, 99, Tukul showed up to be Edge and Christian which is a quality win for this time. And here's a crazy thing. Too Cool was Vince Russo's idea, and it was... It was good. It was good. <laughs> it, it was a good uh, idea for Vince Bro, Russo. Bro, it was an amazing idea. You already fucked it up. It was amazing. <laughs> it was mind-blowing ahead of its time. We had Too Cool... Doing stuff before the Backstreet Boys were a thought. Thought in that, that molester's mind in Florida, whatever his name is, Pearlman, whatever, whoever he was, who just he just wanted wanted to see boys' buttholes and, and make them stars. You know, that guy who's gonna like funded a podcast network. That guy. I fucking saw this before everybody else did. Do you understand me? That wonder why I was? Cause I'm from New York. The Empire State, the world, the country are just copying what we're doing on the street. You can go to Madison Avenue. You can go to Times Square. Somebody's on the street corner doing something that's going to be the next big craze. It's going to be on TikTok eight months from now, bro. Or you could see it in Times Square. I don't know. I don't got time to explain it. It's baseball season's back, and I got to catch a Mets game. So good night and good day. The plan here was for these uh, goofy, obnoxious hills that thought they were super cool to, you know, not be cool. But what happened was the crowd super dug it. They had this just over-the-top wackiness. They had big charisma. They did a fun little dance. Scotty did the worm. And both great in the ring, so they just got the hell right over. (laughs) 
This is exactly how I thought it would be. I say, put them out there. I say, the two, they're, 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 they're too cool. That's what they are. <laughs> they're too, too cool. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yes. I like how you're just taking like the the draws. He's gonna, he's gonna puke. He's gonna <laughs> puke, and you're <laughs> just summoning it in. <laughs> I mean, that's that's my entrance way in. Like like my Michael Caine is like, I'm sorry, I failed you. You know, like that. You gotta have that first line for you to dip in there and become that character. The Vince like the draws thing is is the way in for Vince for me sometimes. So on the November 22nd Raw, Too Cool was facing Val Venus and the British Bulldog when there's a run-in by the Mean Street Posse. And out comes Rikishi to save Too Cool. And after they do a little dance, but it's like toned down. It's not quite the lights. There's no sunglasses yet. First big pay-per-view for Too Cool was Survivor Series, where they teamed up with the Hollies for an old-school Survivor Series-styled match, uh, beating Edge Christian and the Hardys. Rikishi would just like kind of start hanging out, coming down to the ring with Too Cool, like slowly, you know, putting on the goggles, you know, getting a little sillier. But then on Raw, December 27th, 99, shit gets real. Too Cool had a title shot against the New Age Outlaws, who had brought X-Pac down to the ring with them. To even up the score. Your boy X-Pac. Don't forget, (laughs) your boy X-Pac, we can't can't have an episode without you. You know, reminding us that you're, you and X-Pac are boys. So your boy <laughs> X-Pac came down the ring. Continue. Can you please refer to the New Age Outlaws as the Voodoo Kin Mafia? <laughs> no, I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I like how Nick's just trying to struggle his way through information. And I'm like, stop, stop. I'm like, no, 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 you're doing it wrong. I know you wrote this episode and you're the, the, the catalyst and the, and the guy who's driving this bus. But no, take this detour, though. Take this detour, though. <laughs> I mean, they always talk about there has to be an idiot on a podcast. Well, guess what? You have two idiots, Nicholas. So. All right. So to even up the score, Too Cool brought out uh, Rakishi. We get to a spot where there's fighting on the outside. And for some reason, the ref decides to pay attention to this. Brian had hit. Uh, I don't know what Brian called it, but the skull crushing finale. And then he did a big ass leg drop from the top rope. So, uh, you know, he had Road Dog penned. One, two, three, refs distracted, oh no, you know, the whole thing. X-Pac rolls in, he X-Factors Brian, putting Road Dog on top so that he gets the cover and the eventual win because no one kicks out of the X-Factor. No one. Pissed off Rikishi comes in and gets a little revenge. He uh, drops Jesse James on his noggin, which is probably why he thinks microchips are in vaccines. Standing tall, the uh, guys start to get into their dance routine. Rikishi's leaving when Brian stops him. He gives him the iconic yellow sunglasses, and by God, wrestling history is made when they do that sweet, sweet dance choreographed by none other than Brian Christopher. You look fly today. You look fly today. I think that's the song, right? I could never understand the lyrics, but I think you're right. You look fly today. Can you do the weird, like, synth pop music with it? Turn it up!
Uh, yeah, well, and here's another thing too: is Scotty Tuhati is very particular how that song is played on indie dates. He goes, "Make sure that you have it turned up in the beginning. Turn it up." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wait. He goes, "Don't wait for them to say for you to turn it up. Make sure you turn it up ahead of time so people can hear it. Because without that, the pop isn't as big." He goes, "Make sure the people have to hear. Turn it up." That has to be turned up. Not don't listen to her. He's like, don't listen to her on the track. Just listen to me. You turn it up beforehand so everybody can see that because that's where the pop is. Everybody knows. Turn it up. And that's where the pop is. Much like with Mick Foley, the pop is him pulling the sock out. Once he puts the sock in the mouth, that's not the pop. The pop is pulling the sock out. Performers of that time that have it down to a T, like this is where the pop is. You got to know. Much like with... Like probably the dance, the, the the big pop is the sunglasses. Once that happens, that's where the explosion is, and the dance just needs to happen. Wouldn't wouldn't the worm also get a pop? No, the worm. the The key with him was the look. Mm. Like the guy has to be laid out in a certain way, and you have to stop and then look for them. You know, but it, it's always the the pop before he does the worm. Is is really where the issue is? You you want them to want it. Like it, back in the day too. Like gosh. I remember when it would be a situation where a guy would be laid out for the worm and he'd be where he'd be at and he would just look over and people would start standing on their feet like, oh God, yeah. he's going to do the fucking worm. He's doing a goddamn fucking worm. Just seeing people be that excited of it fucking happening is just it, it, beautiful. It's amazing. My, one of my first matches that I remember watching was probably like an 0203 Smackdown that had Scotty Tuhati and Rikishi tagging together. I was one of the people when he looked over for the worm. Like, once I figured out that was his deal, I'm like, oh, fuck, is he going to do it again? Oh, my God. I've never seen such athleticism in my life. It's never been not over. Like, like always. But heading into 2000, Tukul immersed himself in that great tag team scene, taking on the Hardys, the Brute, the Dutleys, the Hollies, all the way up to Royal Rumble 2000. And to me, this is one of the most fun, memorable moments in Royal Rumble history. So Brian entered at number two. Rikishi came in at number five. They got the ring cleared out. They kind of do this like uh, stare down where it's like, oh shit, is Rikishi about to fuck up Grandmaster Sexy? But to save him, in that number six comes Scotty Tuhati. And in the middle of the fucking Royal Rumble, they do the dance. And it's just, it's just a fun, silly moment. And then uh, Rikishi at the end of the dance grabs Brian and Scott and tosses them over the top. But, but he like, he's like, I'm sorry. It's just business, you know, kind of a thing after the rumble too cool would have some of the radicals first matches, which is of course, uh, Dean Malenko, Perry Saturn. He who shall not be named. And Eddie once Eddie's elbow got healed up and then too cool would beat the radicals at 2000s. No way out in a six man. At Mania 2000, China would team up with Too Cool to beat the Radicals again. Uh, this time, Eddie's there, and we're starting to get into that Eddie China feud. So this is kind of like a a vehicle for that. Unless they, we get into like the Scotty Too Hotty Light Heavyweight Dean Malenko thing, I'm surprised we didn't get the Redacted versus Brian Christopher feud at this time too. <laughs> That'd been a nice little spinoff to this world. Those two personalities clashing, I would love to see it. I'll, yeah, I'll, I know. I was just thinking about that too. Like, well, they because you were just saying, and go, they split off here, and I go, 
Well, that'd be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Bucket hat versus missing tooth. What do you, who you got? <laughs> I'm imagining Brian Christopher dancing to Wasme. It's weird. It's weird. You, you think you had a horrible father? <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. All right. All right. 26. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. <laughs> Uh, all right. Oh, let's see the let's see the slash the best joke or worst joke we've ever made in this <laughs> So Tukul uh, chugged along after Mania towards May 29th, 2000, when Tukul would win the tag team titles from Edge and Christian. So from kind of this seemingly like randomly paired up two dudes to what was supposed to be a joke tag team to over as absolute fuck and tag team titles. Like that's a fun little story. Yeah. And like getting over in the attitude era, you can ride that shit for fucking 20 more years. Yeah. Like <laughs> Scotty is still doing the dance with people. Like any, anytime Scotty's brought any, like he's always in the dance where Kishi always does the dance. Like I said, Scotty has been able to ride that way for at least 20 years longer in fact so almost three almost three decades more or less we're almost there nick did you find in your research anywhere like who came up with the scotty too hottie and grandmaster sexy names was that is that vince russo we're attributing that to so the way i understood it vince russo laid it out i can't remember who exactly said it this way and i would like to give them credit for saying it this way but Vince Russo gave them the outlines. Brian and Scotty were allowed to color it in. So all he said is, I want you to be a tag team that thinks they're so super cool, but you're not. You know, you're not cool. Mm. And they ran with that shit straight into this. So I'm going to say it was Brian and Scott, probably them brainstorming together. I got to say, Grand- Grandmaster Sexay is a bigger swing, but I don't think it made quite the connection of Scotty Tuhati. Yeah, Scotty Tuhati is a great name. <laughs> Yeah, and like Scotty's smart like that, but also too being so cool, but you're not. I mean, Scotty's a dad, so like <laughs> he's just like so it's kind of like a, a dad trying to be cool is kind of what Scotty eternally is. And Brian Christopher just knows how to be like a Memphis heel, which is basically yeah. all this is of just embodying something. And I always love Brian when he put the goggles on and yeah. did the leg drop because like wrestling was always very like good guy, bad guy fighting and. In entangled competition, seeing Brian put the goggles on mid-match made me go, oh, we can have fun doing this? Because wrestling seems fun. And when I would see him do that, I'm like, oh, well, that's fun. That's what I want to do. And that's why I like look at me wrestling with the book and the tent and everything I do, like, kind of all goes back to Brian Christopher in some aspect. Just seeing that, I'm like, oh, we can have fun doing the thing that we, we like to do? That's amazing. That's what I want to do. Screw all this like blood feud and pretend to be mad. I'm wrestling. I'm having a good time. Let's have some fun. Let's make people laugh. Let's entertain the people, you know? And that's definitely something I got from Brian. Tukul would defend the belts for about a month, losing them back to Edge and Christian at 2000's King of the Ring in a four-way elimination that included the Hardys and TNA. And... This begins the slow tick down the other side of the roller coaster for Brian. So the tag division here is loaded. 
We just talked about TNA with Trish on test episode. This is a hard time to stand out. And I think to Too Cool's credit, they stood out in an era where, I mean, you're, you're competing with fucking Austin and DX and The Rock for like people's attention and they got it. So that's like kind of a compliment to them, but it's hard to keep that shit, man, with uh, all the heat behind the Hardys, Edge and Christian, the new age outlaws are there. It's just someone has to lose in this group and it was going to be too cool. And getting booked to lose, the fans eventually are like, oh, they're not good. You know, it's just, we all, even if we all know this is predetermined, yada, 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 booking makes or breaks people. Uh, but I'd argue as long as they still do the dance, I think where it really went down for them was when they took Rikishi away from him yes. and they didn't do the dance. I feel like if you keep Rikishi with them and they still do the dance, even losing every single week, they're still just as over. Like, I feel like there could be a reason for that but obviously they wanted to spin Rikishi off in a, in a bigger role because he was getting over so largely but I think if you kept that as a trio you could have took that to the bank for at least another five years cash on those checks but obviously when you take Rikishi out of that equation it's just Brian and Scott they're just a good tag team as you said yeah and it hurt more because Rikishi was just so ingrained in what Too Cool was. So it was always going to be weird for him to not be there. So it was kind of like a death sentence to uh, turn Rikishi, which he did when he uh, hit Stone Cold with a car at Survivor Series. Because he did it for the rock. <laughs> and then to make matters a little worse, in 01, Scotty needed a bunch of time off for neck surgery. So without Scotty, with Rikishi off to the main event, Brian was alone for the first time since 1997. They tried to pair Brian with Steve Blackman. He did a little singles work, but by uh, June, shit was about to get bad. So Brian was like a pretty sober guy before getting to WWF. You know, Jerry doesn't drink. Brian wasn't a big drinker, definitely wasn't in drugs. But WWF, you're a fucking rock star, and that comes with partying. You're on the road 500 fucking days a year. There comes the painkillers, and all the bad habits would catch up with him. June of 01, when he was fired from the WWF, when he was caught with weed, coke, and meth at the Canadian border. Well, you can do one, but not all three. Coke and meth. Man, how awake do you need to be, bro? Well, that's what the weed's for. You gotta, you gotta come down a little bit. <laughs> and I think this was like posted on like WWE's website. And this was like during the time I think this would have been when I was taking classes at Clinton Community College in the summertime because I was doing track and field, so I took a lower class load. But to catch back up to make sure that I graduated in four years, I had to take some summer college-accredited classes at the local community college, which sucked. I had to drive like a half an hour, 35 minutes early in the morning, be there for four hours, and then drive back home. Bright side is... They had really good internet, better than at my dial-up at my parents' house, because it's a community college. And I used to go on WWE.com every day after class and sit on there for an hour just to get all my wrestling news and read the Ross report. I emailed Jim Ross one time, and he replied back in the Ross report, all snarky at my marky things. <laughs> um, and I remember this being reported and on WWE.com like so abruptly. And they were really like, could have just been said, hey, we parted ways or Brian Christopher suspended. But they've like made a point like it was drugs. He was growing <laughs> like they like they they heaped it on top. And I've heard Jim Ross talk about it. 
Like he had to go tell Jerry Lawler, his broadcast partner, that I had to go suspend your son. And like, as I said, Jerry doesn't do a single drug. So now his son's being, you know, suspended for drugs. Like I'm kind of, I'm kind of laughing to myself because like, I've been listening to so much Jerry Lawler doing research for some of these that I'm imagining him responding in his on-screen voice. <laughs> he's like, you suspended my son. Why can't I suspend my penis in a woman? What? <laughs> <laughs> suspended in there all the time. Give me, give me 69 days in there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, and, and as a guy who, like, didn't I have a lot of practice of being a father, I mean... And him, obviously, never taking drugs. He's probably like, what the hell's wrong with you? Just don't do it. Like, yeah. And then walk away and not how, know how to cope and be empathetic and deal with the problem and like point him in the right direction. Like, Could have been a real turning point of like, hey, son, like, I know this happens or this or, like, or really been there for him. He just was like, you moron, you messed up your career. Like, and then let him go off and do whatever. And almost probably felt a little ostracized. After getting fired, still got to eat. You, you've only had one job your whole life, so it was off to find some wrestling work in the uh, early 2000s indies, which is not a great place to do it. By June of 02, Brian would find another promotion to get like some regular work in, early version of TNA. Uh, now going by Brian Lawler, he'd work with uh, old pal Jeff. He worked with Scott Hall, Six Pac w- w- at the time. He formed a faction with Eric Watts and David Flair called Next Generation to feud with Dusty Rhodes. And obviously the, the little play there is that they're all second generation kids. I think then he also like, he was a part of that XWF stuff with Hulk Hogan and Jimmy Hart. Like, I think he might've been involved with that. And then like that WWA stuff in Australia. That was a little like, later, AJ- yeah. Yeah, but the, like any like person that was gonna pop up and take on WWE like he was like right in there like he was one of the first signees was Brian Christopher oh three Brian would have a bunch of TNA dates also Memphis wrestling primetime which had uh popped up you know anything about that Jake yeah there was always some like iteration of Memphis wrestling we're coming back and doing Memphis the way we used to here's Brian Lawler in spring of 04, it looked like Brian was going to get a second chance with what was now WWE when he was hired by Jim Ross. But soon after, Jim was replaced with John Laurinaitis, who fired Brian after about a month of losses. So not a great run there. Show up, lose a bunch on TV, uh, get the fuck out. A lot of it was probably his past. A lot of it was, we're in 04 now. John Cena's here. Randy's here. We got to make room. I watched a match in this time frame, Grandmaster Sex A versus Christian. Raw, April 26, 2004. You can find it on YouTube. He feels so out of place here. Like, I started watching in 02, and around that time, there was like that hard. It's almost like that's a bookend to the era of the Attitude Era for sure. Like, yeah. they get the F out, and then we're on to something else. And 04, two years after that, Grandmaster Sex A, with that gimmick still, it is so, so out of place here. And this is honestly the last time I saw Christian look this strong until his AEW run. Like, he looked so good, just not even really giving Grandmaster Sex A any offense. Like, they were firmly like, no, Grandmaster Sex A jobber, no credibility. A great, fantastic little quote from this match. 
Jerry was going off about something and JR just stops, no sells one of his comments and goes, I don't know anything about Paris Hilton. <laughs> like just annoyed that Jerry's going on about Paris Hilton during this Grandmaster Sex A match. He's like, listen, I don't know anything about that shit. <laughs> Concussion? You mean good night sleep, pussy? Hi, I'm Jimmy CTE with CTE Sleep Company. Are you having trouble sleeping through the night? Is your bed like this new generation too soft? Well, CTE Sleep Co. has you covered. How does it work, you ask? Well, wait a second. I'm about to fucking explain it. Each month, we'll send you a brand new steel chair to get blasted in the face with. Use it on yourself. Use it on your family. Hit your dumbass kids with it. Fuck them. Here at CTE Sleep, we have one rule that I can't remember right now for some reason. The CTE Sleep Company. Have a seat to the hill. Following a not-so-great return, it was back to the indie scene. Man, this is, this is Mickey Rourke wrestler shit. One of the biggest tag teams on Earth. Bad luck comes in, new generation comes in, addiction comes in, depression comes in, and now you have your fingers crossed that this scumbag promoter is going to pay you. I was always on shows with them during like this whole time period. I feel like from 2009 to like almost up to his death, really quite honestly, I was always around him and like it was just, I hate to say it, but it was sad all yeah. the way around. But it was kind of funny to be around him a little bit. Like he, he'd always find a way to get a good laugh in. He'd do these bits and these matches, and he would do them all the time. Like he was able to, because he always wore the, the pants, and so obviously since he didn't have like the nice, cool, tailored, like seamstress-made ring gear, he just wrestled in yellow camel pants that he found at some No Limit Soldier store, wherever. <laughs> I don't know if I can know, and. He had this ability that he could like wrestle around with somebody, and in the midst of wrestling, he was able to undo his pants enough that it stayed up for when he got back up from the move, but then take one step forward and his pants would fall down. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, like he he could get in there, wrestle, 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 move, boom, 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 like wrestle around with somebody, then get up, like ha ha, see I'm a wrestler too. Take one step forward, his pants would fall down, and then he'd run around, trip over his pants, or like like there was these little tricks that he figured out that I was always like I always tried to make a point to watch because he always had something like oh I've never seen that before oh that's cool you know like he'd always do little things like that I remember one time I I was on the gathering of the Juggalos with him. And Cole Cabana was doing his officer Cole Cabana thing. And we were teaming together. And I was the man scout. And he was like, Yo, you two need to be a tag team. Like, because <laughs> we were both in our off, like, uniforms. And, like, and it kept going on and on. And we should be Animal Patrol. Like, ever seen that show on, on TLC? <laughs> like, I'm like, no. Like, whatever. But he always, like, would do something stupid or ridiculous. And then, of course, he would do the typical thing that I hate. Like, anytime there was a beautiful girl on the show, he'd have to, like, tell her all of the advice when really he's just staring at her tits the whole time. The only reason he's talking to her is so he could, like, ogle her longer. Um, like, there was always those things. Showing up late, drinking in the locker room, could never find him, rarely at his, his merch table. I mean, there was all those things. And you're, and you're right to say it's very Mickey Roy wrestler-ish. I, I think that's the best way to put him at this point period of time 
which is a shame. Like I said, he, there was these little bits he would do in the ring that I'm like, this is the smartest thing I've ever seen before in my life. So that that ability was still there. It just it was just bogged down with just so much bullshit when he got out of that ring. So in July of 07, Brian reunited with Scotty Too Hotty at the UWF Rock and Roll Express Tag Team Tournament. And this was obviously after Scotty got released by uh, WWE. Oh, this was the Hermie Sadler shows. Yes, I remember us booking this and putting all this together. Oh, nice. Yes, I was I was around for this. So Hermie Sadler was basically the the best way to put it was the angel investor for the TNA house shows. Oh, the race car guy. Yes. NASCAR yeah, okay. driver, and, Nick? NASCAR okay, driver, well, Hermie Sadler? <laughs> and, and then some stuff kind of went sideways, and TNA wanted to distance themselves from Hermie, and they wanted to take over the, the house show business themselves because they had reached a point that they felt that they could do it themselves as opposed to have somebody else you know, take care of it. But they still liked Hermie and allowed him to use, I can't remember what the number was, like you can use 10 TNA wrestlers and whoever you want, but you can't call it a TNA house show, but you're allowed to have, 12 TNA wrestlers on on your show which usually like sometimes something that happened a lot of indie shows if you had like three TNA wrestlers TNA was like oh you could only book two or something like that they had like you could because then it becomes more like a TNA show then it becomes a no limit show or an XYZ promotion or an IWA Mid-South like there was always like a certain quarter you could met but because Hermie did so much for them Hermie was allowed to have like three-fourths of his roster being TNA which Hermie wanted because like was a mark for guys on TV. And then, of course, he's like, all right, well, let's figure out some other people to book. And then Scotty Tuhati's around. Kevin Nash was around. And then we used Scotty a couple of times. He was really good. And then this tag team thing come up. And we're like, well, you know, if we get too cool involved here, that'll make a good addition to this tag team tournament, which was supposed to honor the Rock and Roll Express. But then Ricky fucked it up over money. So I think it was Jay Lethal and Robert Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> like wrestled through the whole tournament. So if when you had asked me the other member of the Rock and Roll Express, if I had said Jay Lethal, would that have been all right? <laughs> Technically, Technically yes. Okay, all right. Fair, you would have been correct. Fair enough. <laughs> you would have been correct. Which normally it's Robert who's flipping out about shit, but fucking whatever reason, Ricky felt that he was not getting paid well enough and he was getting three paydays right now because it was like a tag team tournament over three days. It was like three payoffs, but I think he found out that Robert was making a dollar more and he just like <laughs> lost his shit. Because <laughs> like, Hermie was just like, he just contacted like, hey, what, hey buddy, I'm going to get a three-day tag team tournament. Uh, what's a rate? And then he said his rate and then he went to Robert and Robert's like, hey, it's got to be a lease for this. Because <laughs> he doesn't give a shit, and Ricky found out about it and said, "You're not paying us different." And then Hermie was too new to know that you got to pay a tag team the same amount. Just because one guy said 150 and the other one said 300, you can't not pay them that. So I remember that being a thing. But I remember too cool on all that. I, there might have been some fuckery at Brian Christopher, but and a lot of like Scotty shaking his head. Like <laughs> I remember, that. I'm sure that was going on. But yeah, that, they definitely did the pants thing on that whole thing. Also, too, like Brian had the quickest top wrist lock transition ever. Like you'd be going in for a lockup and he would just snatch your arm out of nowhere. Like I remember editing those shows and I'd be like, whoa, he just put him in a top of Like you didn't call it. It was just like, you're about ready to go lock up with him. And he would just catch your arm out of nowhere. Like his reflexes were so fast. He could put a guy right in a top wrist lock right away. Like it was incredible. On the uh, Hermie shows, 
Tuchel would beat Carino and C.W. Anderson before losing to the Steiners. Uh, they had a loser bracket, and then they also put over Chase Stevens and Andy Douglas. Back on his own, he, he started working a bunch in Tennessee. In 09, he worked that Hulkamania Let the Battle Begin tour in Australia, teaming up with Rakishi a lot. That was the first time I think Ric Flair wrestled after his retirement to Shawn Michaels. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I'm not mistaken. So Brian did have some random WWE uh, one-nighter returns. He did a segment with Jerry and Cole, March 14th, 2011. This is worth a watch. Oh my (laughs) goodness. Yes, it is. About a 15-minute long promo. All of it is on YouTube for anybody who is interested. Uh, This is around the time Michael Cole. Michael Cole was attempting to be uh, a heel. Uh, Was not believable at all. He was put in that plexiglass, like, little thing. He was the official mouthpiece for the Raw General Manager. Fantastic. And he and Jerry are feuding, and it's going to eventually lead to a match, I think, at WrestleMania, like, 27. And Cole brings out Brian just to fuck with Jerry leading up to the match. And basically, Brian goes, you weren't worth the fuck as a dad. You... Never cared for me, and you always acted like you were ashamed that I was your son. And Jerry basically went, uh, yeah, you know what? Sometimes I was ashamed of you as my son. You're a bigger screw-up than Charlie Sheen, which is very much a dig of the time. And it's very interesting, because I feel like it was like just a little bit of like some realness in there. But it's also so funny that they're using this real life like battle between a father and a son over emotional things and like a long history of, you know, a not perfect family as a vehicle for Michael Cole's WrestleMania debut. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to enjoy Michael Cole dancing, that's also in the segment. Only other note I have on this. Holy shit. Brian Christopher and Jerry Lawler have the exact same sense of fashion, (laughs) which is just very affliction-y. You know, they'll yeah, wear button-up yeah, yeah, yeah. shirts, but, like, it's those baggy ripped pants, jeans that are they're of the time. Yeah. Brian also showed up to an old-school Raw January 6, 14, when uh, him and Scotty and Rikishi beat three-man band. February of 14, he popped into NXT for his uh, last WWE appearance with Too Cool putting over the Ascension. 2014, Brian and Scotty Too Hotty would, like, team up on the indies again, like, for a whole run. Working the American Indies, they worked Europe, did this until about 2016. And then the last documented match of uh, Brian Christopher was November 11, 2017, when he beat Donnie Primetime at Georgia Premier Wrestling in Canton, Georgia. During this whole run on the Indies, Brian had a lot of addictions, substance abuse problems, and, you know, he never righted the ship. I think we've talked about this a lot on here where I think as Jake puts it, a lot of guys get a second act in life. Uh, Jake had one himself. Candido had a little redemption arc before he passed away. Rick Bogner was a really good example of someone who got out, changed his life, but not Brian. Jerry spent thousands on rehab that never stuck. Family and friends tried to reason with them. Nothing stuck. And then almost like a wrestling angle, things would build and build and build until Brian's death. Brian's death is, you know, it's obviously tragic. It's too soon. If you're uh, struggling with depression or suicide, you know, get help. 
But this is one of the most controversial deaths I think we've ever talked about. In fact, I've put this episode off for literal years just to see what the fuck happened. So we have a lot to unpack here. Please excuse my like five minute monologue. Here we go. Brian and local law enforcement had a lot of heat. Brian was arrested several times for things like public intoxication, disorderly conduct, DUI. He went to jail for like 30 days in 09 for not going to court-ordered rehab. He was always very confrontational with the police when he got arrested. Brian would say that his arrest felt like they were becoming more and more personal, but also like if you keep breaking the law over and over, it probably feels like they arrest you a lot. But he did send a friend a text one day saying that one of his biggest fears was that the police was going to kill him and get away with it. So, all the arrests, all the problems with the cops, this all led to July 7th, 2018, and a lot of this is sketch. So, about 1 a.m., Brian was driving home when he appeared to be swerving and speeding. So, Brian said he was driving with his knees, doing what I can only assume was texting, And that's why he, you know, kind of creeped over the yellow line. But either way, cops saw him, hit the lights, but Brian kept driving. So the cop followed him all the way home, where he accused Brian of being drunk. Brian was like, go ahead and breathalyze me. They hit him with a breathalyzer, and he actually blew a 0.00. But either way, the cop booked him for, uh, first of all, evading the police. But also, they tried to hit him with a DUI charge. That was never going to stick with the 000. So Brian was booked at Hardeman County Jail, which, not a great place. And in fact, several inmates from this specific jail died due to negligence, including an Albert Dorsey, whose story you should remember, he quote unquote, committed suicide in solitary when the cameras just happened to not be working that day. And he had an autopsy that reported that he died of murder. So Brian's in jail. Jerry comes down to jail. He's visiting Brian when uh, Sheriff John Doolin, who looks like a real-life Farva from Super Troopers, hops into the conversation, and he promises Jerry that jail's probably the best place for Brian right now. He'll protect him during his time there. The sheriff said that, you know, Brian has a court date next week. We can keep him here. It's going to count as time served. He's going to get 90 days anyway for the DUI. Might as well start knocking those out. We'll get them help. We'll get them treatment. We'll get them, you know, psych eval. Sheriff said word for word, I will personally look after Brian and Brian will be safe here. So as a father who had spent thousands on rehab that never stuck, as a man who was watching his son ruin his life, watching his son die, really, Jerry decided to leave him in jail. However, when Brian was in jail, he never received treatment for addiction or mental health. In fact, Brian was refused his depression medication for more than three weeks. So he's going through all the withdrawal symptoms that, you know, go along with that. And something Doolin and pals had done before, almost killing a prisoner when they ignored to give him his medicine for pancreatitis. The the guy, like, his, like, feet were turning black and he, like, couldn't eat and stuff. Like, he almost died and had to get rushed to the hospital. So we're, at the very least, dealing with someone who's an idiot if not outright evil. So this is not, this is not a good jail. Cut to July 29th, 2018. Jerry is in Raleigh for 2018 Supercon. At 10.30 a.m., he gets a call from the jail from Brian, and he's saying, you know, all things considered, he, he was fine. 
he was rational. You know, he's like, hey, it sucks to be in jail. But otherwise, you know, he was good. He did, however, say that the sheriff lied and he had, he had not received any treatment. At 2.30, Jerry gets another call, this time from the sheriff saying that Brian had been in a fight. He got a gash over his head. They got him all stitched up. He's fine, which was not the whole truth. So Brian did get into a fight that day. But uh, Brian like kind of like took his back MMA style and was choking the guy out. The prisoner cried uncle. Brian let him go. And while Brian was kind of like catching his breath, the prisoner full-blown sucker punched him. They hit him in the head and he put like a big gash over his eye. So right away, Brian is like, I need to get this fixed. I'm a performer. My face is money. I, I need stitches. And uh, what they didn't do was get him help. Instead, they put him in solitary. Again, on a day when the cameras just happened to not be working. Something about this jail cell that was uh, wrong was that they had bolts like protruding from the wall. And they left Brian, who had previously told a jail employee that he had thoughts of suicide in the past, that he had depression. They also let him keep his shoestrings, which you're never supposed to do in solitary because solitary confinement is like it makes you go fucking insane. Like it's pure torture. Later, the guards walk by Brian, and they see him standing on the edge of his bed with a towel over his head, which, you know, is weird. But instead of checking on him, they go, the guard goes and takes out the trash. Uh, he's just talking with some of the other guards. When another guard comes up, and it's like, hey, what if we checked on the guy who hasn't moved in like an hour? <laughs> so they walked in, and they found Brian hanging from the bolts. He still had a faint pulse. They cut Brian down using child safety scissors because it's all they had on them. And, you know, in a scenario where he's literally choking to death, just took their time. They choppered him over to Regional One Medical Center in Memphis. So Jerry gets yet another call, this time saying that Brian had hung himself. Get to Memphis. Jerry takes an emergency flight to Memphis where he finds Brian hooked to life support, no chance of recovery. And Jerry held his son's hand as he passed away at the age of 46. And here's where it gets sketch. Jerry took a picture of Brian after he passed away. And a couple things. He noticed that Brian had defensive wounds on his hands, you know, cut knuckles from fist fighting. The marks on his neck, for someone who hung themselves, they, they didn't go all the way around to, like, the front of his neck. They were, like, just kind of on the sides. And again... That big old coincidence that the jail cameras just, you know, they never seem to work when someone dies in jail. You know, fucking Radio Shack. And this is like, this is hearsay. I'm nowhere near an expert on any facet of this story. But it's incredibly hard to hang yourself, from what I've heard, if your feet are touching the ground. Like, the, the pressure that it takes to, like, stop the wind, your gut instinct as a human being is to, like, yeah, stop yeah, it. Yeah. And if he's just... With, with nothing else could have been in the system. Like, that is, it's either fishy or it is an incredibly brutal way to go. Exactly. Yeah. And from the picture, what people are thinking is that with the defensive wounds, he was fighting someone off. With the way the strangle lines are, they were choking him from behind while he was, like, fighting, literally fighting for his life. But this leaves us with a few theories. So first. Maybe this was a retaliation murder from the fight. And first of all, he's in county jail here. He's not in prison. So the chance that he roughed up like a cartel member or an Aryan Brotherhood or a Blood or a Crip, probably pretty small. But on top of that, 
Brian was in solitary where only someone with access, with keys, with someone who could just waltz on down the solitary without being stopped could access them. So it's probably not that. That leads us to theory two. The guards murdered Brian. Especially with the cameras not working. You know, maybe they saw a chance to squash their local problem. But it's probably more likely that they had yet another prisoner die on their watch. So they were going to try to cover their tracks here. Which leads to theory number three, Brian did kill himself. And everyone's knee-jerk reaction was he would never. Uh, And in fact, uh, (laughs) someone said that Brian loves himself so much that he would never hurt Brian. (laughs) And I think that is a lot of people's reactions when you hear that someone killed themselves because you just hope it's not true, you know? But we are talking about someone who is being starved of their fucking mental health medication, symptoms including suicidal thoughts when you're coming on and off of it. Someone who just got sucker punched, so that's another head wound. Maybe this was like the perfect combination for Brian's brain to fucking lose control, and that was that. Also the chance that Brian died from the impact to his head. Because we're talking about like getting sucker punched here. There was no bracing, there was no protection, there was no boxing gloves, there's no MMA gloves. This is full swing to his skull, unprotected, which could have caused internal bleeding. By a prisoner, not like so, not like somebody working at the bank or yeah. <laughs> you know somebody you met at a comic con who just ran up and punched you in the face and he was dressed like Zelda. No, like <laughs> this is somebody who's locked up because hey, we can't have him on the streets for whatever particular reason. And even then, if it's not an especially strong punch, just hitting hit in the right way can knock you out, and then that fall to the floor and you hitting your head. That that's yeah, what could yeah, kill yeah. you. Yeah, yeah exactly. This sort of impact is something you see in car accidents. People get out of a brutal car wreck and they're like, fuck, uh, I'm okay, I'm okay. And then 30 minutes, die. Because they had internal bleeding in their brain. So maybe Sheriff John Doolin and the Hardman County Jail, which is a private for-profit prison, maybe they saw yet another case of neglect and a prisoner dying at their hands and they staged Brian's suicide just to cover their asses. You know, I felt like you were being very hard on the police. Like I always, I always try and err in fairness, and I always feel like there are there are good cops, and then there are the worst human beings ever that wear badges. Like I, I, I try to be as fair as possible when it comes to the police. But when you said this is a for-profit prison, fuck everybody working here because yeah. I think those are the mo- those are the most unconscionable things. In the fucking world. I think that's terrible. Those things should never fucking exist. I was kind of like, eh, Nick, like, uh, I, get, I get police. They have a reputation, but not all cops are bad. Trust me. I've Some of my friends are cops, and I know that there are some very good police officers. There are some very awful, terrible police officers. But the second you said for-profit prison, nope, every one of these motherfuckers <laughs> are probably the worst individual you've met in your life. And probably fuck them all. There may be one good person in there, and he's too bullied to do anything nice or good or to speak up against them. Uh, If there is at least one savior in the midst, he is fucking browbeaten and scared to death to do the right thing. But yeah, it it wouldn't shock me for it to be a cover up in that sense. Like, oh, we're kind of already in hot water. I've heard cops. I dated one and she told me many stories where they cover for each other in that (laughs) sense. Uh, That's something I heard. Jake, Uh, it's only a few bad apples. It's only a few. It's only a few bad ones. <laughs> no, but like, but everybody in the AEW security team, like they, they're cops. I would feel comfortable. I would say that they're fair individuals. 
listen, I've seen them have every right to fucking slam a person to the ground and get very physical with people who are trying to attack our talent. And they have been fair and protective and, and definitely have been very much uh, judicial or very uh, conservative in how they handle people physically at events. So, and they're all police officers and I w- wouldn't dare say that they're all, you know, a few bad apples, right? You know, like, no, these are, these are good individuals that have badges and they patrol the street and they keep them safe and they ser- protect and serve and they do it here at AEW. So I would never belittle them or talk or back talk them in any, any sort of way because I feel like they do a tremendous job of policing. But yeah, there are fucking the worst people on the planet. So we have fucking badges and some of them are probably in this fucking jail right here. Mm-hmm. I think the, the marks around the neck are very suspect for sure. That's, that's kind of uh, disturbing on, on that. And the depriving of depression medication, I think is unconscionable. Just even that alone makes you terrible. Yeah, there's just a lot of loose ends in it, everything. And sometimes, like, just because the pieces don't fit doesn't make it a conspiracy. But when nothing fits, then guess what? There's there's no clear-cut answer. And also, too, there's probably something wrong if none of the pieces fit. Yeah, definitely not saying every guard is bad. But I am saying these guards and cops yeah, are yeah. bad. I think we can all agree. <laughs> From uh, what we've heard, just the depriving of medication, that's fucking terrible. And... He got into a fight and not received medical attention. All, all of those things. I think we can all agree that these guys are probably probably the worst. Especially when somebody says, I will personally look over your son. And clearly that's not happening. This is not fully the place to get into debates on policing in the U.S. I mean, big boss, man. Great guy. Uh, but <laughs> there... Oh, I... <laughs> Yeah, don't get into me about. Uh, uh, I, I listened to a podcast about free will versus determinism. Oh Jesus and Christ! How the ra- the ra- <laughs> ramifications in the legal system. If we start talking about that, we got to go through that worm, yeah. that that rabbit yeah. hole, and I don't think we're ready for that because there is no fucking real answer. Right. Just and there are there are good cops and and bad cops, but definitely the police state, not not calling the U.S. a police state, but the state of policing in the U.S definitely has a lot of work to be done. So at the very least, they are bad at their jobs here. Yeah. And it's, it's frustrating to me. These people should be held to the strictest of standards. If you are responsible for other people that are, they, they have their rights taken away. They are locked away. It's not their, you know, they, they are being forced. If you let them run free. If you, if they're if they're not unchecked, then right. like who are we checking? Right. At the end of the day, if if, if the people that, as you said, that's a brilliant brilliant way to put it. People who have had their rights taken away, if the people that are watching over them are not held accountable, what, what the fuck are we doing here? And under their guard, yep. two people are dead. Yep. Accidents be damned. Like if if uh, I'm at a comedy show and something that I do accidentally kills somebody, I mean I'm I'm in trouble for it. And more often than not, there are cops doing way worse things than possibly depriving someone of medication. We don't really know what happened here. And uh, everybody needs to be looked at very, very closely in this whole situation. Because I don't think they did everything that they should have done. And it is their fault that Brian Christopher is no longer with us. No matter how it happened, you know, Brian did unfortunately pass away. 
And as far as investigating this, Jerry Lawler, I believe, is still locked in a wrongful death lawsuit with the county, with the sheriff for just, you know, negligence for failing to protect Brian. And I believe that the trial started May of 2022. I think it's still ongoing because I definitely didn't find any articles saying with a verdict or anything. It's just a guy blows a zero, zero, zero on a breathalyzer and now he's dead. It's fucked up, man. Up there, uh, one of the worst things we'll have to talk about. I think the only thing worse is Bruiser Brody. Yeah. Like, like, I think like that's what we're talking about here is probably the worst end to any podcast we've had. Like, pretty, pretty fucked up. All right. So this aside, final thoughts on uh, Brian Christopher as a person, as a wrestler. So looking at his entire career, going all the way back to his first televised match, or a non-televised match, I should say, he went out, had a serviceable match with no training. And uh, yeah. from what I found, never got any training. The dude had wrestling in his blood, which is crazy because uh, I don't know who his dad is, but uh, I don't know. Maybe he comes from the business. But Brian Christopher made a great career for himself through his singles run throughout uh, the USWA, his tag team matches, the light heavyweight stuff in the WWF onto Too Cool. He was a part of my childhood ever so briefly. But he was a natural talent that did a lot to entertain a lot of people. And uh, it's a shame how he went out. Too Cool, was it hit me. I was, I was right in the Attitude Era. I, I remember them. It's someone, you know, I, I liked a lot. They were fun. They were silly. I mean, Scotty and Brian, it was their commitment to the fucking bit that got them over. And, you know, like I said, you're as a person who enjoys wrestling, you're doing yourself a disservice to not watch him in Memphis. like. I was blown away. Good talker, good worker. I mean, he's Jerry Lawler's son. <laughs> like, he, he gets it on a level that uh, a lot of people aren't going to get it. His downfalls, definitely sad. But Brian seemed like one of those guys that was so fucking confident in himself <laughs> that the sad parts to us, he was probably like, bro, just biding my time till I'm back in the WWE. Like, just... Wouldn't doubt himself for a second, you know, pure confidence. No one deserves the ending he got, whether he took his own life, whether he was killed, whether it was covered up and he was framed for, you know, a suicide. It's just no one should die in the situation he died in. It's very sad. I hope Jerry gets an answer, something. I hope he gets closure because this is a kid. It's fucked up. It's sad. Um, And, you know, Brian deserved better. That part of, like, Brian just going, man, I'm just biding my time till WWE calls me back. Like, I think I've heard him say that. Like, <laughs> I I wish I had the confidence that that Brian had. Like, I feel like I'd probably be more successful if I had that type of confidence in myself. And that was probably a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, as I said earlier, Jamie, then do you say, Brian, you need to get out of Memphis. That's nothing but trouble because you feel like, you know, since your dad's the king, you can do what you want. And yeah, he had that, that arrogance, but at the same time, too, that was probably pushing his creative juices. And as I've said throughout this podcast, like there's these little bits he'd come up with. And I'd always, you know, no matter how much he annoyed me in the locker room of like, man, this is just unprofessional behavior in the ring, watching him, I'd always see something like, man, I've never seen that before. And I guess I never really realized him putting the goggles on and doing the leg drop, how that would affect me in my career 
of like, hey, this is fun. Let's do something fun that people haven't seen before. Because really, that's what I aim to do every time I go out there and read the book in the middle of the match is I'm trying to do something that they've, the fans have never seen before. And I, I think that's what Brian always aimed to do is give them something they're, they're not seeing from everybody else. And putting the goggles on, dancing and doing the leg drop and doing a little little stupid dance and probably was definitely the guy like, you know, I could see Scotty going, ah, should I, should I do this worm thing? And Brian's like, heck yeah, do that, do that. Like, he, like I could see him like, Definitely being the guy that pushed for that to happen. And, you know, like I said, just the funny little bits he'd come up with. I, I think that's what I'll remember him. I, I definitely have not seen enough of his USWA stuff, but as much as Lucky Ali talks about him and him being his favorite wrestler, I think I'm going to go back and, and watch. And, you know, I, that's what Brian's doing. He's a, he's clearly on an influence on somebody who's like a wrestling kid of mine. And he has a wrestler in 2023 who's watching him and trying to emulate him as much as possible. I think that's, I think that's pretty cool. I think as all performers, we kind of hope for that. This is the, to have entertained the people as much as possible, leave our mark and hopefully we've inspired some people to do, do this wrestling thing as good as we did. And then Brian has definitely done that. All right. That is uh Brian Christopher's 10 bell pod. Like always, find us on Patreon. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. Uh, we're on the social medias at Tim Bell Pod everywhere. Jake, Tyler, yeah. Uh, for one, uh, oh, sorry. No, Tyler, you, 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 you no, please, you. Please, no, 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 please, no. You. Jake, I insist. <laughs> Age before uh, beauty. You insist. Uh, yes, uh, I was alive and jerking off to WrestleMania 14 while you were three. <laughs> you, you are correct. Well, um, we got to wrap this up because I want to be the next to do it. You. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah follow us on the social medias nick does a tremendous job on our twitter account um he does a fantastic job of posting memes and interacting with the fans there's some people that are like oh man your 10 bell pod twitter is really funny and they try to attribute to me nope that is 100 percent nick alexander and his humor so please do not uh, attribute all the the fantastic jokes that you see on 10 bell pod and the memes and the hard work that is done there that is and that's from the mind of one Nicholas Alexander. So I just want to make that very clear. So, and if you're not following on 10 Bell Pod, uh, especially on Twitter, you are missing out. It is, I, I've even laughed at some of the things that our Twitter account has posted and some of the things the fans have posted as well. So I, I enjoy it greatly. People are very happy that we're back. And whatever you guys want to post about on there, I always make a point to see and I'm happy to see it every time. Yeah, I want to say thank you guys for all the great feedback that you've been giving us. Thank you for everybody that subscribes to the podcast, has left a review, and thank you to everybody that supports us on Patreon. If you guys are over there, or even if you're not, and you want to see some other stuff from us, whatever is wrestling-related in some sort, uh, Jake and I are working on some more drunk wrestling histories at some point. Nick and I are working on a couple different things. So whatever you guys have floating around that you want to see us do, drop a comment on the Patreon, drop a comment on the YouTube channel that we're, we're starting to flare back up with. Uh, and other than that, thank you guys for listening. You know, I, I genuinely appreciate you giving me credit for, you know, like the Twitter and the podcast. Sometimes also I'm like, 
it's like an out for you so that when shit really <laughs> hits the fan, you're like, that's nah, exactly man, that why, was exactly, exactly what I'm doing. I'm covering my bases. I'm terrified of all of a sudden, you know, like, like that Mr. Show sketch where like the entertainment walks up and like, Hey, you have to leave now. I'm waiting for the, somebody to do that with me. So. <laughs> all right. If you see Jake at a show, give him a pack of, Oh, the one and one the NFL. Uh, what's it called with football? The Panini one and one Maybe just Panini one. Is Panini that, one. Right? Yeah, there that, that's fine. If you want to get me some, I think it's exquisite NBA by all means. Uh, I'll maybe I'll give oh, yeah. Nicholas a card. <laughs> maybe I'll give Nicholas a card out of there. <laughs> Thank you for thirty thousand dollars. <laughs> all right. See. See you next week. That was the sissiest clap I've ever seen before in my entire life. Uh, you got to be more specific with me or Nick. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hot in here. Oh, it's me. Oh, it's head. me. Okay, uh, I got gotcha. you. My, 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 my boob can't come together. Dude, dude, my tits are sweating. I don't know if you can tell. There's a, a sweat line under my tits. Sweat tits. Tyler Wood. Mm-hmm. Whose tits would sweat? Tyler's would. Hey, uh, you, can't, you can't put my material out there, Jake. That's... <laughs>